every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Micah Hirschman, VP of Marketing at Envoy. Envoy is transforming modern workplaces with products that make office life easier and work more meaningful. Micah is a marketing leader with a 20-year history of integrating inbound and outbound demand generation strategies to drive growth and revenue at B2B software as a service and B2C organizations. On this episode, Micah shares his insights into the building blocks of the modern data platform, why websites are the single most important conversion tool for B2B organizations, and why the bottom line of marketing is about customer experience. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce. You can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals, buying intent, and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Micah Hirschman and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by a special guest. Micah, how are you? I'm great. Thanks. How are you today, Ian? Doing well. Excited to have you on the show. Excited to chat about Envoy, which is a definite fan favorite uh, of mine as I've been in just about every office building in the greater Bay Area, and I've had many an Envoy experience. So Excited to chat all about that stuff and your background. What was your first job in demand gen? My first two jobs were actually in the publishing space. I worked for, first I worked for a company called Borders Group, who ran Borders Books and Music, Walden Books, thousands of stores. And then shortly after, I worked at a company called Dark Horse Comics. So publishing content, they were both consumer-facing businesses, super low margin, like scraping to make a profit, both of those kinds of companies. They had hundreds of thousands of SKUs, unlike Envoy, where we have you know one SKU or five SKUs. And they had real problems with differentiation. There were tons of competitors on the comic space. It was DC and Marvel Comics who were exploding. On the uh, Borders space, it was Barnes & Noble or Amazon, who was disintermediating everybody else in the space and crushing us. So I came into demand generator from a very different point of view, not SaaS, not B2B, but from a consumer side. And I think about demand gen a little bit differently as a result. And so flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about your role at Envoy. Yes, I've been at Envoy for almost three years. Next month, I run the marketing and brand design teams here at Envoy, and I'm currently leading the BDR and SDR functions. Okay, let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with the nest are we not this is where we can go and feel honest and trusted and you can share those deepest darkest demand gen secrets so what does envoy do it's a great question thank you for asking as you might expect in the workplace has changed a ton over the last several years coming into the pandemic the workplace is very different than the workplace you see coming out of the pandemic 
And Envoy builds products that really are intended to help solve that complexity problem. How do we transform the office and turn it into a place that people really want to be? We focus on a couple of things, but first and foremost is making workplaces that people love and really work well. Our goal is to make reopening safe and super easy. And we've got a number of products that make up our platform and our suite that welcome visitors, that keep everybody safe, that help employees book space like a desk or a conference room, sync their schedules is a big part of what we do right now so that everybody can come into the office together and get creative. That includes things like building access, security, and more. For us, the bottom line is about experience and customer experience. Envoy today is in over 16,000 locations in more than 100 countries. 150,000 people a day are using our products in a hybrid environment. We're still growing. So we've recently gone through our Series C fundraising, $111 million, uh, an evaluation of $1.4 billion. It's a crazy time for Envoy. I tend to tell folks that there's no business that's more relevant than Envoy right now. You know, Mike, I tend to agree. I think Envoy really is just about as important as any company right now. And I think because the world kind of shifted so much and how this like flexible workspace and how that stuff all looks and feels and how it connects from digital to physical and having visitors and figuring out what desk to use and hybrid work and all of that, it, it is, it's at the top of all of our minds. Yeah. And the, the complexity I think is multiplied, you know, health and safety as a multiplier, things that used to be um, so conspicuous and normal in Silicon Valley life, free lunch and how you serve food has become more complicated and how you sanitize spaces and how you utilize your space effectively has become more complicated. And really importantly for us, how you set your hybrid schedule, how you find a desk, but you don't want to come into the office and have no one on your team there. It's a disappointment. And that is exactly the sentiment we're trying to really fight against. We want when people to come in to have an awesome experience, to drive collaboration and productivity way up and have people say, that was cool. I want to come back into the office again later in the week. What are the types of customers that you all have and, and how do you target them? It's a great question. We talk a lot about our customers and we spend a lot of time getting clear on that and communicating it to our organization. We have effectively, we have four personas in our organization and they start with the technology director. So you can imagine a mid-market or an enterprise company, the folks responsible for technology in the organization are an obvious customer. Second on our list are security leaders, especially when you think about the enterprise space and you think about access to your building and how people come and go from that space. Security is really important, especially if you have serious hardware or intellectual property to protect. The third persona is workplace managers. This is our bread and butter in the mid-market technology space. The the person who's responsible for the daily operations of the activity, we spend a ton of time focusing on them. And then finally, in, in an emerging persona for us is the HR leader. And I think this is, um, as you and I discussed, tied to the rise of the hybrid workplace and the complexity that's part of that. So now HR has to be involved because they're health and safety concerns. Okay, so digging in a little bit to those four personas, obviously those four are are very different. They, they seek different end goals for them, for how they impact the organization, all that stuff, and kind of makes a little bit of a complex buying committee there as they have kind of different pieces there. I'm curious, like, how do you look at that as a buying committee? How do you create marketing for distinct personas? 
it's a super tough challenge, and it's one that tons of folks in the startup space experience. Um, it's part of the definition of being a startup. You're trying to figure out who your customers are. What is your product? What's your product market fit? How do you go to market? So this question comes up all the time. The answer for Envoy is relatively straightforward. First, we think about our business as a horizontal platform. You can use Envoy if you're a dentist's office, if you're a podcast host, or a highly in-demand podcast producer. It doesn't matter to us. And so we have some messages that are really universal. And we make sure that those persist across all of our messaging. For example, ease of use, beautiful design. Those are kinds of things that we market to everyone horizontally. Then, of course, we have verticalized messaging and we're getting deeper and deeper into verticalization at the GTM level. And then finally, we have the enterprise component, which, as you referenced, Ian, is the, the committee. So in the enterprise component, you've heard this a million times, I'm sure, on your show. You start to think about account-based marketing where you've got programs that actually target what we refer to as below-the-line buyers, people like the workplace manager. We provide them with hands-on content, how to do a thing, how to solve a problem, inspiration. We also provide them with content to sell upwards in their organization. How do you pitch your VP of HR, your VP of security on Envoy? And then we market very differently to those C-level suites, curated dinners, the kinds of high-level content, direct mail, and advertising that you'd expect to a kind of senior leader who might be focused more, less on experience and more on cost or return or security or compliance. Talk to me a little bit more about your team and how you structure your go-to-market. Happy to. Go-to-market at Envoy is relatively straightforward. We're a 350 person, largely B2B organization. Most of our revenue comes from the sales side. We do have a kind of a product-led self-serve motion. We look like you'd expect. We have a marketing team that's broken down into demand gen, which is our largest function by design, product marketing, comms, and visual design. And there are sub-teams within all of that. On the, uh, and the demand gen function, of course, is primarily supporting the sales org. On that side, then we have the BDRs, who are largely inbound and focus on SMB business, high conversion, short sales cycles, lower ATS or average transaction size. And then we've got the SDRs who are what we call a hybrid. They take some inbound, but they also are tasked with the outbound sales motion, really prospecting into either high value or strategic accounts. We've got the sales organization that you'd expect is tiered by SMB, um, mid-market and enterprise with a team in the UK. We've got a customer success function, and then we've got an emerging growth function that's really led by our product team with cross-functional partnership from other parts of the organization, including demand gen, product marketing, et cetera. And you mentioned that having some of those traditional sales teams under marketing is, is kind of an interesting thing. Obviously, we deal with some folks who do, some folks who don't. What's your piece with this? I am passionate about the BDR conversation. I believe that this is a true statement. The single highest point of leverage in your sales and marketing funnel is the handoff between demand generation and BDRs. You put a ton of money, millions of dollars in the top of your funnel in direct response or awareness advertising and content development and events. You're generating leads, you're nurturing them, qualifying them, scoring them, and handing them off to the BDRs. And those conversion rates, when you look at the benchmarks, are not great. You know, the conversion rate from an MQL or marketing qualified lead to a sales qualified lead can be 60 to 90%. So you're losing 30% of your investment right there. And it gets worse. The handoff from a BDR who accepts a lead to set a meeting is much, much lower. And that handoff to opportunity to create is horrifying. 
the, the amount of money that's pouring out of your funnel, you know, it's wild. So focusing on that BDR organization is something we do and we spend a ton of time on. And there's a couple of things that are magical about it, about how we operate, I think, and that make a difference. The first is the most important meeting of the week, which is the demand generation BDR handoff it takes place on Tuesdays, first thing in the morning. It's co-led by our demand generation, and our BDR leaders by segment. So we have an SMB mid-market meeting and an enterprise meeting. And those folks come in and we grind through the numbers every week. What was our leads versus target? What was the lead mix? What was our MQLs versus target? What was the MQL mix? Did something change? Did more high value folks come in from one channel or another? And we talk about the campaigns are shipping, educating those BDR managers. Then the BDR managers are talking and we're going down to the BDR level. Did XBDR make their call volume targets this week? What was our time to first touch by segment? Our goal is under five minutes. Are we at that goal? We are not. But every week we look at that number and we look at every single BDR and how fast they get back to leads. So we're working weekly to optimize that handoff and make the most of it. That's magic moment number one. The second thing that's magical is an SLA. And if you are out there and you're a marketing leader without an SLA between your demand generation and BDR function, I would suggest you stop what you're doing right now. Go look up some examples of how to do this. Reach out to me. I'm happy to share. But the SLA is effectively a written document that we refresh every six months that outlines how demand generation and BDRs will work together. It defines every stage of the funnel explicitly, how we measure it, what Salesforce report to use. It talks about the responsibilities of marketing in terms of the goals and the quality we will deliver and the BDRs and the time to first touch and the number of touches per lead that they will deliver. And it is literally signed off on. We go through DocuSign internally every six months to have every demand gen and BDR and sales leader sign the documents. And we say, we have agreed this is how we're going to operate as one team. And that makes the finger pointing go away. That really accelerates the one team, one dream mentality. And it keeps the churn and the spin from, you know, arguing about, well, is it this or is it that? It reduces it to almost nothing because it's all on paper and it's crystal clear. I love that. Yeah, I want to get my hands on that thing. Maybe you can just teach me your ways. Uh, I can create my own. Yeah, That's really fascinating. Why did you decide to to make that? Where did that come from? Seven years ago, I was at Eventbrite. And we were scaling up the demand generation machine there. I came in at 300 individuals in the company at $100 million in revenue, where the self-serve product-led growth was driving the business historically. But we're trying to move up market into mid-market and enterprise. We're trying to grow our transaction size. The organization brought me on to help lead that effort. And it was very clear early on that we had BDRs are notoriously junior in their career. No fault of their own, of course, but it's their second job. Their managers are generally more junior in their careers. And sales leadership, proper sales leadership in the AE world, are almost always interested keenly, but a little removed from the operational details. It was an observation that myself uh, and a couple other my teammates made that it's almost always about communication, right, and clarity. If we can tighten up the communication and clarity, if we can set expectations well, this machine is just going to move faster. We're going to spend less time arguing about stuff. And we turned it on and it worked incredibly well to help scale Eventbrite from 100 million to 400 million to IPO, which you know in turn opened the door to give me the uh, opportunity to talk to Envoy. But how much of that was at the expense of Brian Rothenberg? Because I feel like he was just kind of sitting in the background, <laughs> you know, drinking tea. Oh, boy. I love Brian. I can't believe you bring up... Brian is one of my dear friends. I have enormous respect for him. He was running the self-serve engine. He'd been kind of building growth at Eventbrite for a long time. And so he and I worked intimately for a while. We were peers for a while. He was my boss. 
we worked intimately on how something really tricky works. How does the self-service funnel work with the sales funnel? How do you maximize that relationship? How do you take people coming in through a self-service motion, identify them and say, ooh, these are high-value customers, move them over to an AE to maximize revenue? And how do you identify low-value customers or customers who just don't want to talk to a salesperson, take them out of that funnel so we're not driving up our LTV CAC rates by having them engage with the salesperson? So that that flow between self-serve and sales was a huge part of what we did at Eventbrite, what we're doing at Envoy, and I credit Brian Rothenberg for really driving a lot of the thinking around how to Giving him credits, too. Shout out to Brian. One of the <laughs> nice guys. And a brilliant, brilliant nice marketer. We got, has he been on the show? I got to bring him on the show. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about with this, and then we'll move on. I learned about Envoy by visiting all of these different company headquarters. The thing with tech in general, and not just tech, but here here in the Bay Area specifically, and where there's a lot of tech, when you are going to a lot of meetings, you're meeting your friends, you're going doing this sort of stuff, everyone has pretty advanced office spaces with a very like tech-enabled sort of setup, and Envoy started becoming very popular. And, and there was this kind of great moment where you'd get in and it's always this crazy kind of, okay, what am I going to get when I, when I go to this company's headquarters and there's going to be all this crazy stuff and you'd go and I'd see the little envoy kiosk and I go, oh, okay, this is going to be easy. And I'm just curious, like, did you all ever take a look at just like what that type of marketing had? Because if you're talking about just like putting that little kiosk that makes everything so much easier. Obviously, that's part of your product, but it's also brilliant marketing to be sitting there in everybody's headquarters when all the visitors and all the candidates and all this, all these people come in and have a great seamless experience as a visitor, then they go, hey, you know, maybe at some point when I'm in that role, I'm going to beat on the facility's door and say, hey, we should do this or, or HR or whoever. Yeah, we did. Um, most of that work was right before my time and as I got here. Uh, but, you know, there are hundreds of stories around the organization of CEO of X company goes visit CEO of Y company and has that amazing experience and gets on Slack or sends an email and says, hey, we w- I want this and I want this when I'm back in Germany. So, you know, and then they go and um, install Envoy and we can see those connections happen. And we spent a lot of time figuring out how to optimize and maximize that connection. So that's number one. The other really interesting one is more of the non-CEO em- employee experience. So. One of our features is called Passport, which is a sleeper, amazing feature that kind of shows you every, on your application, on your phone, shows you every company you've been to. And it makes it super easy to check in. If you fill in Passport, much like Clear at the airport ahead of time, it'll automatically fill all that in when you arrive at that company. And people will stand in line and just watch people pass them. And they're like, how did you just do that magical thing? They're like, oh, Envoy Passport. And that's been another really great viral motion, a kind of employee-driven to showcase the magic of the product right in the front of the building. Yeah, if only we all had a magical experience in our market. Like, how do we get that to live in other... (laughs) You know what's funny? I actually thought about this back in the day. Every time I'd use Envoy, I was like, somebody should just create a product like this just as part of their marketing and just give it out for free. Like that piece of the, just that one part of it to have that experience because you get to be in every single headquarter of every company. That's a great and, point. You know, obviously you all have an extremely layered solution with all sorts of different products, but it, it was something that always kind of struck me that if nothing else, if you all were losing money from the very beginning on visitor check-in, it was probably worth it to build the brand. It's uh, really interesting you say that because... What I think about is folks know about Envoy from our visitor solution. Yeah. Um, and that's where the primary revenue stream is. However, we have diversified 
with a suite of products, kind of culminating what we call our workplace platform. So we went from single product, worked our positioning and messaging, pivoted to become a workplace platform. But that's actually a middle step for us. Our vision of being a platform is much more truly platform oriented. How do we rely less on any given product to drive revenue and move to become that hub that's in the center of the workplace where every other company who's building workplace products is building it on our platform, our data, our mobile application. And we can start to monetize the future of that, those interactions and rely less on visitors. So it becomes, as kind of you suggest, an easy entry point to the platform. Yeah, always so nice when you have some consumer type feel to your product. We see a lot of this. We have 40 plus podcasts that we do. So had the guest experience on any of our shows. I was like, oh, I don't know who is doing this. Now we do it a lot of times on on behalf of our customers, but which is great for them because they that it's the same sort of, of thing. That key, that one-to-one experience that is memorable and, and remarkable is always great. Okay, switching gears. Let's get to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three uncuttable budget items? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward for me when we think about the funnel. And I'll be the first to admit, I think about a traditional funnel. I know there are helix eights and cycles and circles. But for me, top to bottom of the funnel, it's paid. How are we driving exposure to either direct response, people starting a free trial, or exposure to our content, maybe in the enterprise world? The next one is SEO and content. SEO and content for us has a radically lower payback period in terms of weeks, whereas a paid program can be in terms of years. And SEO content has a much higher customer count, almost 2x our paid programs. Fraction of the cost, double the volume of customers. So those two are at the top of the funnel and they do a number of things, right? They serve multiple purposes. They build your brand. They drive direct response or free trials, kind of building your database. They capture net new leads. So again, we can put in our database and market to these folks. They help crowd out competition. They help keep you top of mind. When you're a lower price product, we don't, Envoy doesn't cost, you know, Marketo or Salesforce kind of numbers. So you want to be top of mind when somebody's considering a product like Envoy, you want to be top of mind. So paid and SEO are, are key. So you've got these people in your free trial program or in your Marketo database. How do you engage them? How do you nurture them? How do you expose them to your content? How do you build confidence in your products, in your thought leadership across the market? And then how do you score them and deliver them to your BDR team? Anything that has been your your most cuttable budget item or something that you're like, I don't know if we're going to invest in this in the future. Yeah, you know, the thing that comes up in, in every company ever since I've I started really as a working marketing professional is social media. Social media on the B2B side explicitly is notoriously yep. challenging. You can, and every CEO wants it, right? They want an amazing Twitter feed. It's built for that audience. They want, a, you know, kind of a great enterprise LinkedIn feed. You can hire people. You can produce content. You can sponsor, boost your posts. And they are great at driving engagement and building brand, but they're kind of terrible at generating net new leads that convert. I think social media is the place where we have to invest. And we're always walking that fine line of how do we make sure that we're doing this right at a good level of quality with the right frequency, but not putting resources in there that we couldn't use more effectively to generate demand elsewhere. Yeah, I started casting. We didn't even, we still don't even have a Twitter handle just because you're like, 
again, from a brand building perspective, of course, like it's on the to-do list down the road, but it's like, to what end? It's like, that's the whole thing with all of social media is like, where do you stop? Where does the sprawl end? Is it that you're going to put daily stuff on TikTok? I heard a while back, the average post on, on Twitter gets less likes than the size of the content team that created it. That's the truth, right? <laughs> so you're like, why build, why build a monument to failure? And then I think the other thing that's so fascinating about things like that is you all speak to four different personas. So in that end, who are you talking to at any given time? Because if you're talking to all four of those, trying to have one cohesive stream of information that's relevant, they intersect with the, your product. I think that that's what's so tough with social is it's a stream of content that you're putting out in the world and more importantly, engaging with other people. And I think that's the other thing where people get it wrong is your social team should be 80, 20 engaging with other people, not just posting. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, and, and again, the magic here is what we're talking about is B2B. B2C is a totally For sure. different animal. Yep. You know, I'd, I would build a playbook differently, but on the B2B side, social's got value, but for us, it's more of a distribution channel to do a couple different things, right? We take that same ebook that we produce for an enterprise customer that we put in a paid program on LinkedIn and we use in our engagement programs. Well, yeah, absolutely. We can slice and dice that on use on social and we should, and we do, but you know, we're not spending tens of thousands of dollars and hiring a ton of people on social to build social content for B2B. That's not going to return. Yeah. One of the things that we've seen across almost all of our shows is that creating video content for, for LinkedIn is vastly outperforming anything else. And so if you're doing hundred percent like agree. clips of demand gen visionaries, for example, on qualified LinkedIn stream, those do fantastic. When our guests post them, they do way more fantastic. So if you, what we see is that if you're creating video content for LinkedIn and your customers and prospects and people in your community are then sharing it, but that's where you see a ton of value and a ton of brand halo effect. That's right. Literally in our staff meeting an hour ago, I asked our content social person, the videos that we're posting on LinkedIn, are those organic or paid? Because the volume of engagement was 2x what we typically see. And she said they're yeah. fully organic. It's just so. that's what the algorithm, that's what LinkedIn wants. It's what Microsoft has put a lot of effort into, apparently. And for that channel, you got to use it. Do you have a favorite campaign that you've done over the past handful of years? My favorite campaign ever was B2C. I got to work on Harry Potter 7 with Scholastic, the producer custom content. We produced custom books that you could only get through us. It was amazing to work with Harry Potter at the height of Harry Potter, like literally goosebumps. I was the coolest person in the company. It was crazy fun. And we got to do wild and creative stuff. And it was a massive financial success. So that was my favorite ever. Now, if you talk about favorite campaigns at Envoy or at Eventbrite, they actually fall into the same category in terms of what they were and what they yielded for the business. What it is, is on-demand demo. So many companies, so many sales organizations do a live demo and there's value in that and you should maximize that. But supplementing your live demo or replacing it with an on-demand video demo, and it's a game changer for a whole bunch of reasons. If you move to on-demand, your customers can access it whenever they want. Secondly, what we saw at Envoy and what I saw at Eventbrite was 22 minute long demo videos from a BDR who may or may not have been very polished, may or may not have been outdated within three months of producing it. And suddenly 12 minutes into your 22 minute video, it's wrong. So moving to modular video, let's talk about our various products in our suite, or let's talk about solutions or use cases in one or two minute videos. You get more viewability 
there, you get more people watching through to the end. So in terms of the consumer engagement, that's been massive. Secondly, you can gate it. If you're a fan of gating, I am still a fan really? of gating. There's upside into the lead capture and scoring. Absolutely. It's, it went from our number seven campaign, both at Eventbrite and Envoy, to our number one or two campaigns. So MQL volume shoots up. You've got people who are raising their hand and saying, hey, I'm interested enough in learning about your product that I'm going to give you all my information. Great. Now, not only is that a net new name to your database that you can nurture, but it's a high intense signal that says, oh, B- hey, BDR, go reach out to these people within five minutes. So hugely high intent. And it doesn't take much to do. You can work on making your on-demand demo easier to find, like we did at Envoy and Eventbrite. Put it in your nav for um, our emails. We put it as a footer link in all of our emails. Check out the demo now. And then you can spend some time, as we did, on BDR enablement, training them that this is a high-priority campaign. We break our campaigns for BDRs into three types, high, medium, and low. Hand raisers with high intent, like the demo watch, go straight to high priority. So they work them right away. They need to be educated on how they came in. And then we work on the sequences with BDRs and outreach. Okay, somebody comes in through the demo and they watched this video. Here's the sequence. Here's the talk track to really maximize the opportunity. And it's had a transformative impact on top of funnel, top and mid funnel growth at both Eventbrite and on. That's so interesting that you're pro-gating. I'm pretty anti-gating at this point. So I'm curious what why... Why are you pro-gating? It's a mix. The right answer, in my opinion, the right answer is a mix. So for example, at Eventbrite and now at Envoy, once you reach critical mass of content creation, the 80-20 rule is in full effect. If at Eventbrite we had a thousand eBooks, only a handful, right? 20% of them were yielding results. So you keep the gates on those, take the gates off the other 80%, and suddenly you get the Google SEO value from all of those super rich eBooks that no one was filling out the form for anyway. And you're still getting the high demand stuff that people are willing to give you their information as a signal that says, go talk to this person right now. Great insight. I love that. I still think I would not gate, but that's compelling. It depends on what you have, right? Like, for example, our number one blog post is what is hybrid work? Yeah. And we don't want to gate that. We want to educate the world on what hybrid work is. But if you want the playbook on how to deploy hybrid work at your organization that is 20 pages long, fully custom illustrated, tons of insights from actual customers. What we find is people are willing to give up their contact information for that still. Do you have a worst campaign that you run? Yes, we all do. Mine was fortunately a decade ago, long enough that the pain of it is starting to to ease. In my role at Dark Horse, we were responsible for super fun and cool marketing. We worked on comics with media partners like Star Wars and Halo, cool franchises that like every 25-year-old dude is like, oh, just would love to do that for your career. And I was responsible for Comic-Con, our presence at Comic-Con, a massive event. And I was, of course, too cocky. And I thought our old branding was dated and it like we weren't leveraging multimedia. We had tons of Hollywood talent to come and sign and we didn't have space for them. We did retail, but it looked crappy. So I worked with our head of design and I worked with a third party events organization to re-engineer this whole program, rebrand it, put in new hardware and infrastructure. It's a $500,000 event. Now that's crazy compared to what most B2B events are. We sent 60 people to that event for a week and it was insanely expensive. And I thought I was doing a great job of rethinking the brand and making it more cohesive and pulling all the properties together and rethinking about color and appeal and differentiation versus the Marvels and DCs. I was so excited. My team was so excited. We deployed it and we got to Comic-Con and our CEO got there a day or two later and he absolutely hated it. He hated it top to bottom. 
hated the layouts, hated the digital, hated the swag, hated the look and feel and the color. And I was crushed, just destroyed because I was proud. First of all, because I was proud of it. I thought I was doing good work. And secondly, it was a massive investment for the company, just like horrifyingly bad use of my time. And I really struggled as a marketer. I'm sure so many folks listening to this have experienced this. Some things are hard to get over and they and they change you. If you've ever read Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, he articulates it well. You don't learn unless you suffer. And that was a moment of real pain and real suffering for me where I learned as a marketer, you can't be cocky, think you know what you're doing. You can't ride that horse by yourself out in front of the army. You have to bring the CEO in. You have to bring your head of sales in. You have to be circulating and socializing at key checkpoints all along the way, or you're going to set yourself up for a massive moment of pain at the end. How do you view your website? Website is the single most important conversion tool that any B2B organization has. That's my strong opinion. I say that to everyone I know, every CEO who I talk to about leaning into marketing. It's the most important conversion tool you have. Secondly, it's a critical brand and positioning tool. And you should think about those two things together, brand and demand. They are not antagonists. They are not opposite. They don't operate in parallel and separate channels. They work together. So you need to think about your website as the prime example of that first and foremost. At Envoy, we've got a manager who's responsible for the development and the productivity of our website. And by that, I mean, is it generating traffic? Does that traffic convert into a net new name? Does that net new name convert into a qualified lead? So we've got one person who's responsible for that. And of course, they work in concert with the design team and with product marketing and, and you know the rest of the team. Every year, we invest in the website significantly. It's one of our primary investments, top three. We invest in testing and we use a lot of tooling and we play there. Right now, we're really focused on personalization. We're really excited about Intellimize and Gaia Leaf over there and what they're building is a really super cool tool for driving more conversions from traffic to lead. That's our number one goal for that team. How do we get more net new names into our database from our website using tooling? And then we, we also break our site into two parts. We have a commercial site and we have our content ecosystem. And they're, of course, related and we work very hard to make sure the customer experience is seamless and the branding is seamless, but they actually serve different functions. Our content site is more of a top of funnel brand and engagement tool. And we build that on WordPress. And I'm a passionate advocate for WordPress. Maybe it's a data technology, but it's friendly to marketers. And that is the most important thing because our commercial site is built on a fancy technology that I can't even explain to you. And we really need engineers to go over there and mess with it. And the number one learning on the website, if you're building a website, a startup, if you're thinking, how do I do this, is use technology that your marketers can get engaged with. It's a horrifying moment when you're like, oh, I'm going to make this simple change on the website. And you're like, no, the engineer who does that is on vacation. And suddenly you're just, you're just banging your head on the table. So marketing-friendly technologies for website development. Yeah, final piece here on content. I do want to shout out just some of the resources that you have, the Workplace Trends Report, the Return to Workplace in, Index, and some of the other resources that you all have that I think are pretty cool. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting in one of those reports was that foot traffic is the lowest on Friday by about half, which obviously that makes sense. And Tuesday and Wednesday are the two highest. But I, I just love, I call it fight where you can win, but I love it when marketing leverages stuff that you own that is your first party information that only you can put out reports on because, and it just seems like you do a lot of stuff like that. 
Man, hearing you say that gives me goosebumps. I couldn't agree with you more. I think platform data is something that everyone needs to leverage. And if you're a marketer thinking like, hey, I'm going to go, I'm considering joining this new company. The questions you need to ask yourself, there are lots of them, but include, do they have platform data that helps me tell a story? And can I access it? At Envoy, we've got a ton of access and so we can tell these great stories. At Eventbrite, I had very limited access and it was gated by you know the comms team and the legal team, and the product team. So that made it really hard to tell that story. But because this is really a demand gen focused conversation, I want to lean into why that's so valuable to demand gen marketers. Because not only is it a brand builder, you can talk to your comms person and pitch those stories to the media and be successful. And we've been incredibly successful, mostly because of the moment in time and the hard work of our comms people. But on the demand gen side, this is valuable information. We complement platform data with surveys every single quarter of our personas. And we just published our first annual report. Again, a gated, long-form asset, custom illustration, beautiful, fully unique. But it tells the state of the workplace from a combination of platform data and interview data and qualitative quotations from folks in the market. And I think that stuff is such a powerful tool to generate demand, whether it's interest and traffic or whether it's actually, you know, a, a net new name or engagement if they're already in your database massively powerful tool. I love it. That is such a great insight. Platform data plus surveys and combining those two things. Gosh, I love that. I'm going to, I want to do that. I'm going to do that for us. Let's get to the desktop. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly. As we've got punches and kicks. Where we talk about healthy tension whether that's with your board, your competitors, or anyone else, do you have a memorable dust-up in your career? Yeah, of course. Unfortunately, too many. We're all just battle scars piled on top of battle scars. We walk around limping until we're done being professional marketers because they've accumulated so much. Mine was probably five or six years ago. I was the senior director of demand generation globally at Eventbrite at this point. I was relatively new to the team, to the organization, and we had some high power, high profile folks on the sales leadership team who I was in a meeting with, along with several of my direct reports. And at one point, one of these senior sales leaders started literally screaming at, at my new employee. I mean, I've been there three months screaming at her, screaming. And she's just, you can see she's quiet and stoic. I could see the tears start to come down her face. And I just like, you know, slide aside superhero quiz. I want to be Batman. I'm the Hulk. So I just feel like I'm just like getting <laughs> angrier by the second at this guy angry and angry. And you know, I maintain my cool. I try to diffuse it, whatever the meeting breaks up and I go, it was wild. You know, it was unacceptable, derogatory commentary, like personal and mean. So I went to the sales leader and said, not cool, not acceptable. Like I am going to talk to the employee. I'm going to HR. It's never going to happen again. I went to my employee said, not cool. I am so sorry. This should not happen to you. Sales leaders. It's not okay to scream at marketing people. And then I went to HR and HR was like, this is not cool. We're going to launch an investigation. And they did. And I was super pleased. You know, I was like, okay, I'm operating in the way I should. I didn't yell back at this guy. I talked to people responsibly. I closed the loop with HR. Week goes by. HR pulled me back in and said, we concluded our investigation and your employee declined to file a complaint. Oh, man. She didn't want this guy addressed because he's an influential For sales sure. leader and she's a demand gen person and their fates are tied. And I, I probably just fell out of my chair. You know, just what a shocking thing to have happen. And the lesson for me was, it was so hard to process. Like you think you do everything right. You think you take care of your team. You think you stand up, 
you know, you think you're a good partner for sales, but that really damaged my relationship with both of them. I had a lack of trust in either of those parties because there's some weird psychological dynamic happening there. And I think my failure was I should have stopped it earlier in the meeting. Like the first time the voice was raised, I should have said, we're not doing this. Let's break up and come back when we're calmer. And that was a hundred percent on me. I definitely still feel the scars of that. Yeah, what a dust up. That's a, that's a great, it's great insight though. And definitely good advice to just step in right there, right? As soon as you, as soon as you see something. Right away. Yeah. Don't let it go. Okay. Let's get to our final segment. Quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified. You can talk to your prospects quickly on your website right now with qualified. Go to qualified.com to learn more quick and easy, just like these questions. Micah, are you ready? I am. Number one, what hidden talent or skill is not on your resume? Hidden talent or skill not on my resume. I'm a nerdy science fiction first edition book collector. I train in three martial arts and teach one of them. And uh, going on 50, I still get up and go skateboarding Saturdays and Sundays, 6 a.m. in the morning. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, or TV show that you've been checking out recently? Kingdom on Netflix, which is pretty epic. Really in love with that. Highly recommend it. Super complex drama. Like I said, I'm a book collector and nerd. I'm reading a book called Starfish, which is about an underwater colony on the rifts where they only send down people who have survived trauma. And it's kind of like Squid Games underwater which is super cool. What piece of advice would you give a first time VP of marketing as they're trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? I've probably talked to 10 first time VPs of marketing in the last six months. And I tell them all the same thing. Number one, get crystal clear on your goals with your CEO and your head of sales, crystal, crystal clear. And that includes forcing prioritization. We all know that the answer is yes, both quality and quantity, but you got to pick one. And as a first-time VP of marketing with two or three staff in your startup, you can't do everything that your CEO and VP of sales wants. you got to get crystal clear on that priorities. Then you have to allocate your resources and be crystal clear about that. i got three people. My number one priority is pipe, predictable pipeline for sales. That means I'm not doing social media. That means I'm not doing product marketing. Can we all live with that? And then the last piece is to build a roadmap and say, look, I know you want all this stuff. I know these things are all coming in and I got a million requests. We at Envoy have a monthly roadmap meeting. We put everything we can't do into a document and we put a date on it. We say, yeah, we're going to come back to this when we have more time. And monthly we look at that and we groom it and say, is it time? Yep, let's do it. If it's not time, push it out. That way you capture the thought. You don't lose it. It's top of mind and you show your stakeholders that it's going to come. Micah, it's been absolutely awesome having you on the show. For our listeners, go to Envoy.com to check out all of their cool marketing. Highly recommend some of their resources, which are pretty rad. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, this is super cool. I love talking shopping and thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Today. Awesome. Take care. The Mangen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more. 